Welcome to another episode of the Mindset Athlete Podcast with me, James Roberts, transformational coach, two-time Paralympian, and TEDx speaker. I have another awesome episode for you today, so let's get straight into it. And on today's show, I've got Peter Wright. Hi, James. Thanks for having me on the show. Peter describes himself as a podcast host, writer, speaker, blogger, contrary. You might even have to say this for me. Contra- Contrarian thinker. Thinker. Well, we'll talk about that because I'm <laughs> curious what that is. His topics is inspiring people to overcome and thrive on adversity. He does this by asking questions about and sharing ideas for thriving in the changing world. Born in London, Peter spent most of his life in Rhodesia and South Africa. Uh, his corporate career included marketing management in large and small companies starting in and running his own business. He traveled extensively in Southern and Central Africa before returning to his roots as a farmer in Zimbabwe. So obviously, thanks for coming on, Peter. Obviously, you got run ultra marathons and played polo and polo cross. So welcome onto the show, Peter, once again. Thank you very much, James. So if we start off straight off the top, what's a contrarian thinker for people that don't know? Uh, somebody who thinks the opposite to what the herd thinks. So someone who goes against the herd or runs behind, not behind, never behind, on out to the side of or in front of the herd. So uh, we could get onto this whole virus thing and, and there's a lot of contrarian thinking going into that. But because of my background in, in Rhodesia, when we had sanctions, embargoes, and it was like one tiny little community against the world, we had to think differently. And that, that was a long time ago, but it stayed with me. And, you know, my dad was a really curious guy as well. And he always said, you know, check the facts. Don't, don't assume everything you read or everything you're told is correct. He says, because I can guarantee 90% of it is probably maybe not complete. I don't know if I want to swear on here, complete bulldust, but... Um, you, you can do, you can do. Just okay, so, it explicit, that's it. It'll never get worse than that. Don't worry. I'm, I'm a little careful because I speak to a lot of old ladies in my life as well. So have to be, behave, you know. But anyway, he, he, he always said, and he worked for the British government for many years, and he said, um, you know, never believe everything you, that you're told, by, especially by government, because probably a lot of it is uh, perhaps not entirely untrue, but it's uh, manipulating the way you're thinking. So that stayed with me all my life. So for people that are not cleared up on their geography and just so I, I'm, I'm pretty good with geography and I've been given, uh, if I can find it, you know, an old map of uh, when everything used to be pink. So for people that aren't British, obviously I'm talking about British Empire. So for people that don't know what Rhodesia was, sure. what is it? What is what is modern day Rhodesia now? Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe. It's it's the country directly north of South Africa, in right in the center of Southern Africa, the lower part of the African continent. So obviously, I, I didn't tell the story. I know obviously what we're going to talk about now. What was it like having racism obviously being the opposite way? If you've been a white farmer and being if people aren't clued up on this happened over a decade ago. Two decades rightly. Ago. Started in 2000, the year 2000, yeah. Started in the what, year what was it like to be on the receiving end of kind of doing, it's pretty much your livelihood and pretty much you know what you're doing, to kind of be told by Mugabe, we're going to take your land from and take the, everything that you own and we want you gone. It was, it was, um, it was not a nice experience. <laughs> It started, you know, a lot of people, when I tell them my story, they said, well, why did you wait so long? You know, how, how could you live knowing that that was coming? So there's two, there's two aspects to that. 
The one is one I believe one must always remain positive and, and never give up. That's that's point number one. And secondly, just as we're seeing with the oppression and persecution that's coming with this virus story, bad things start incrementally, right? It, the worst doesn't happen overnight. It, it can, and if, in natural disasters like an earthquake or tsunami, it, it's bad within seconds, sure. But most other things that humans do to other humans start in a small way and get steadily worse, right? So it, our farm takeover started in the northwest of the country, and our farmers' union said, you know, it's all political. Unfortunately, there's going to be a few casualties, but they, they can't afford to take the farms. And logically, that was correct. The country could not survive without the farms. Agriculture was the biggest foreign exchange earner, biggest employer, biggest everything. So a lot of people assumed, wow, yeah, they're, they're right. You know, a few guys are going to lose their farms, but it'll settle down and we'll all be right. And right at the start, I said, no ways. You know, if you don't stand up to evil when it starts, it's going to overtake you. Look at the Second World War, the extermination of six million Jews. Look at uh, Cambodia. Look at all the bad places in the world, communist China. It doesn't stop. If they get their way, they will just keep pushing. So <clears throat> it spread over the course of nearly three years. And eventually we were the second last farm in a, in a district that had had 43 farms still operating. And um, I refused to go and we were subject to really bad intimidation. And then the police got me and put me in the police cells and said, we'll only let you out when you agree not to go back to your farm. So that, that was the, the culmination of that whole three-year saga. you know. But um, we just held out. We thought it was the right thing to do. And um, obviously that's not talked about. 20 years later and ultimately pretty much decimated the country now because yeah. that decision has uh, bankrupted the country. Absolutely. You know, and the tragedy was, it, it, people see it as a racial thing. It wasn't. Uh, it was um, a power struggle. The, the whole reason for the takeover was Mugabe was under increasing criticism because the economy was failing. He'd also been ruthless in wiping out and there's documentary evidence to support this, about 15,000 black people of the Matabili tribe in southwest of the country because they were in opposition. And they brought in North Koreans to train a notorious division of the army called the 5th Brigade, and they were responsible for these mass murders and those mass graves in old mine shops, whatever, whatever. So he was, he was coming under scrutiny for that. He was losing his grip on power. And for the first time, there was a powerful black opposition party led by Morgan's Finger Eye of the Movement for Democratic Change. So Mugabe called a referendum uh, and he wanted to change the constitution so he could take farms without compensation. It didn't matter if they were white owned or black owned. He just wanted to take land without compensation. And he'd also remain president for life. The constitution wouldn't allow him that because he knew that if he lost power, then he had so many skeletons in his cupboard or closet for American listeners, that uh, he would probably end up in The Hague before the International Criminal Court for Crimes Against Humanity. Those were his two motives. And he lost the referendum because Morgan's Finger Eye uh, managed to gather enough support to defeat the, the referendum. So Mugabe lashed out and he blamed the white farmers, you know, five and a half thousand of us for subverting or manipulating our workers, half a million workers into voting against them. Now, <laughs> there's no way we could have done that even if we'd wanted to, no way. And that, that implies that all our workers were stupid, but you know, they were guys that had jobs and wanted to hang on to their jobs. They didn't want to be landless peasants, but that was the political start of it. And of course, 
uh, he then went and climbed into the NDC and locked them up and um, rigged other elections, and it got worse and worse after that. So it was political motivation, not a not a racial or class motivation as such. You know, and my farm workers attended MDC rallies, and they said, and I lent them trucks to go there, and I and they said, we don't want to lose you. You know, we live here. I built houses for. We employed 186 people. I said, we don't want you to lose the farm because we lose everything. So. Yeah, so that was it. And what does what what prompted you to to leave the African continent and, and move to where you are now in the US? Uh, the main thing was um, by the time we lost everything and started winding up, I was fifty four, and my partner we were both fifty four. We said, you know, we're actually getting a bit old to take another chance on Africa. I mean, I love Africa. You know, it was I lived there most of my life, and. Uh, but Africa is politically unstable. You know, I'd lived in South Africa for 14 years. South Africa was on the same slippery slope as Zimbabwe and, and even more violent. Um, and, and we had nothing. We had to start again. We had absolutely nothing. We walked out with two suitcases each, a horse saddle and six cats and enough cash to buy a very old pickup when we got to Canada. So we both had British passports. I was born in UK and... and Sue was, um, her parents were born there. We could have gone to the UK. We had no family there other than my mother, who was in her late 80s at that winter, 80s, and had no way of helping us. And we'd been many times on holiday. We liked the UK for many reasons. We just saw financially we'd be better off in Canada. Uh, with hindsight, that might not have been the case. Um, my eldest son had gone to see the world in uh the mid 90s left South Africa and gone to England, met a girl, and that's as far as he got was seeing the world, as happens <laughs> to many guys. And they got married and had a kid, but she'd been brought up in Canada and her father was still here, just down the road from where I live. So they came to visit him, and my son saw more opportunity here than the UK. And uh, they moved here and got established. So when we went through all this trouble, he said, Come and look at Canada. And we were horrified. We said, wow, it's all ice and frozen wasteland. And he said, no, he said, uh, in summer, it actually gets warmer than where you live in the higher part of, of Zimbabwe, which it does. So we came in the winter. We thought we could survive. The immigration people said we could come under humanitarian and compassionate grounds and live here while we applied to immigrate. We wanted to go to Australia, but they said, at your age, and you, you're not a nuclear scientist or anything else, we want put up half a million dollar bond and you can come tomorrow. You know, And if you... If you're self-supporting in five years, you can get your half million bucks back each. That was each. And we're Oof. <laughs> we got nothing. Uh, two suitcases. So that was our. We wanted it. We would have liked to have gone to the southern states for the climate, Texas or Florida, but to get into the America without context and without money is really difficult. And there's no way we were going to go illegally. So Canada seemed the best choice, and that's why why we came here. Sorry, that was a long answer to your question, but that's the background. And and I think I read your backstory. You, you you're obviously very very into the horses, so it, it makes sense to be in into in some parts of Canada because it's it's, it's lots and lots of land and um, well, what's one? I think one of the stadiums in I think it's Calgary is this called the yeah, Saddle Calgary Dome. Yeah, 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 yeah. We didn't go that. My son was in Ontario, which is has about 40, 45% of the Canadian population in this province of Ontario and, and a lot of the economic activity. And we came here, um, there's a lot of agriculture here, but it's so different to Africa. The farms here are 50 or 100 acres, right? Um, 
but economics mean that a family can't survive on a 100-acre farm. I think the UK is similar. So we have big farmers who farm two or 3,000 acres of crops, but mostly on rented land. They own a fair number of farms, and they're all over the place. So you have this huge farming equipment driving all over the little roads. Whereas in Africa, we, we had farms of several thousand acres and, um, you know, we, the roads were our own roads on our farm. So strange enough, where I live in Ontario, um, there are fewer open spaces than in many parts of England. Um, you know, I mentioned before we started the show that my brother lives in Kettering and driving from Northampton to Kettering, I know there's a couple of 2000 acre farms that you drive past where you don't see a building. Uh, here, I can't, when I look out of my house, I, I, certain ways I can see four other farmhouses, right? And uh, out west, it's quite different. So we did get horses when we came here. Um, we kept horses for about 12 years, but we got fed up. We were spoilt in Africa. You know, we had an eight kilometer and a seven kilometer ride around our own farm where we didn't have to go near a road and we could have good gallops and train our horses. Here, you, you have a six-week window in the spring before they plant the crops and a six-week, if you're lucky, window in the in the autumn when the crops come off before it gets too cold and snowy. Snow is not a problem. It's the ice under the snow that makes it dangerous. And because land is so expensive here, they, they plant right to the boundaries. So, so right to the road, right to the fence, right to the bush, whatever. So riding other than on the road is difficult. Or you've got to put your horses in a trailer and go off to a conservation area where you can ride but you'll probably find a couple of other hundred people, a couple of hundred other people riding at the same time. So as I say, a few years ago, we said, we're getting old, horses are getting old. We're not enjoying this one little bit. Let's find them good homes. And we got out of horses. Very sad, but we did. And obviously I mentioned in the introduction that you, you, you did partake in ultramarathons, polo. Mm -hmm. What is polo cross? Polo cross was started in England for... It was used as, a, as a, a, a game for mounted units in the army. And then after the Second World War, it was called poor man's polo because polo, as you probably know, is really expensive. You need, you need four or six horses, saddles for each one. You need transport to take them. The club subscriptions are horrendous. And you've got to have grooms. So it really is a rich man's sport, right? Well, Whereas polo, so what they did with polo cross, they said we're going to make it. You can only have one horse per game or per comp, per tournament. You can't change if your horse is unable to continue. Your reserve comes in on a different horse, right? So you can't change during the chuckers like horses. The chuckers are shorter. The field is much smaller. It's it's a quarter the size of a polo field, and you use a a stick like a lacrosse net. You pick the ball up rather than hit it, and. So your overall speeds in polo cross are much slower. You don't have long gallops like you do in polo, but your speed of motion and turning and that is quicker than polo. So, so the action is quicker than polo, and it, it's very good game. Um, three, you have three people in a section. At polo, you have four. You have two sections, so you alternate one chaka on, one chaka off. You play normally for six minutes on, six off, and you play either three or four chuckers each and then the idea is you throw your ball through the goals you don't hit it through you throw it through and uh, you have a defender an offensive player and a midfield player and in the goal scoring area you can only have your one defensive and one offensive player so it's one-on-one -on -one, but it's a lot of teamwork of passing and uh, it's it you need 
your horses need to be more skilled than polo and they need to turn quickly and uh, push other horses. It's a good game. So probably more like it's um, aquatic equivalent of water polo. Yeah, similar, similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think most people most people probably seen polo because of well, you, when you see it in the news on the BBC, it's obviously Prince Charles. So it'll be yeah. the ro- royalty and obviously the 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 elite status of the population playing sure. it. Yeah. So I play polo just for a, a little bit because when the trouble started, a lot of our clubs got taken over. They were on farms, right? So our polo cross clubs got taken over by the government by putting landless peasants on there and poor people couldn't couldn't survive except by stealing and you know, it was horrendous so we lost out our, our clubs to play but my neighbor played polo and the polo clubs were generally there was only three or four in the whole country in the big cities but he had a field on his farm and he said why didn't he says we always practice on a sunday or whatever why don't you come over with your polo cross horses and, and give it a go i said yeah sure so we did and um i had I think I had four good polo cross ponies at the time. And Sue had a couple. And when they got on this big field, it's quarter mile long compared to a polo field, they thought they were on the racetrack. And all our horses, <laughs> were, our horses are thoroughbreds. They're ex-race horses. I think three of my four had been on the track. One had won a race even. So they they just went berserk. And I mean, the one time I was <laughs> almost through a fence at the end of the field, through a staff village, road <laughs> <laughs> and back, and then the game was still going on. So it was it was great fun. We only did that for I don't know a few months, and then I had my worst ever horse accident playing polo. In fact, I was reaching back for the ball, and in polo, unlike polo cross, you have a strap around the mallet, so you strap it to your wrist. And I was reaching back to hook a ball and turning, and my horse slipped and went down with my hand behind his backside and bent back, couldn't let go of the stick, and. Uh, at the same time, he fell on my foot. I couldn't get my foot out of the stirrup in time. The stirrup twisted and broke three bones in my foot. And then I broke the head of my radius and smashed my wrist up and my arm, my hand. So it was a bit of a mess. <laughs> so that was my last serious accident. Yeah. And that, I, that, I didn't play polo anymore after that. Either. Well, things changed. And uh, it was soon, soon after that we left the farm. So, yeah. Well, I, I think it's pretty, you just describing it, it's, it's pretty horrific to imagine. You know, breaking your radius. You know, for 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 um, not being able to get your leg out from pretty much a lot of weight coming down, falling uh, horse. There's a few tons. Close on, on five hundred kilos of horse on top of you. <laughs> you feel it. So what what has the the your experience of your experience leaving Zimbabwe played on? overcoming adversity because it's a slightly different uh take on adversity that most people hear about so i i I was fortunate in many ways in my generation my upbringing you know my parents were good old british stock um wartime both parents fought in the war my mother believe it or not all five foot three of her was a military policeman in in the WAF for the women's air force and used to go to pubs in london and haul these great big soldiers out of air force guys out of pubs and send them back to the barracks so um that that made her quite a strict mother that experience in many ways but it was good for us but we grew up with that sense of duty and doing one's bit and all that good old british stuff we then had a good British education and excellent. The, the Rhodesian school system was based on the British system. 
before it got too liberal. So we got caned at school if we misbehaved and didn't do our homework. And people nowadays think that was absolutely horrific, but it, it taught us to behave ourselves and that there were consequences. If you didn't do what you were supposed to do, you felt it. <laughs> so, um, I mean, we, we could get expelled from high school from smoking, even if you were caught smoking out of school uniform in the village or in the city and one of your teachers caught you, that was grounds for expulsion. It was that wow. strict. Now, a generation later in South Africa, my two boys went to schools where corporate punishment was still in and they both got caned a few times and they said, Dad, you know, we actually enjoyed that because like you, it taught us consequences. And they said, and your punishment is over and done with. There's no calling the police. There's no bad record. You know, it's four cuts or six cuts. Yeah, it hurts like hell, but that's it, done. And you don't do that misdemeanor again. So they were very happy with it. So, so that was it. Then, of course, 15 years of sanctions in Rhodesia when you couldn't get any luxuries whatsoever. You know, you had a couple of brands of cigarettes. You had one brand of washing powder, one brand of toilet paper. Half the time you couldn't get petrol or gas for North America. We had coupons to get petrol. Um, couldn't get presents for your kids at Christmas. Um, yeah, it, it was tough, but we got the basics. So that was a good experience of learning to survive with what you needed, not what you wanted, right? You, you had to put your name on a waiting list to buy a new car, and you had a choice of a small Renault, a medium-sized Peugeot, or a medium-sized Renault, and uh, two Japanese pickups, and this and then I think a Mazda pickup. That was it. That, that was the only cars that were coming in, and you put your name down and you waited. So you you A, you looked after your cars, and B, you fixed them, and they went wrong, right? Because you couldn't buy another one. So that was a really good experience of doing without and making do. And then tough times in the military when you're five, six days in the bush in 40 degree temperatures, not enough water to drink, walking miles, risking getting shot at, uh, risking having to shoot someone. That again, toughens you up a little bit. And um, and then the, the, perhaps the, the most humbling experience was the three days and nights I spent in the police cell in uh, the village of Marandera when they forced me off. That's the only way they could get me off my farm. It was about 12 foot by 12 foot uh, with an open pit toilet in one corner and the smell was absolutely horrendous. And um, at one point there were 27 of us in that in that little cell. We could not all lie down. Most of us had to sit with our knees up around our chins so that a few other guys could lie down, took it in turns. And I was the only white guy. So for people who don't know Africa or people who do, they would think, well, that must be awful, must be a death sentence. It wasn't. It was absolutely an amazing experience because most of these guys were either political prisoners or the whole law and order system by this time was totally corrupt. So if the police... The government couldn't afford to pay the, pay the police their salaries. Often they were six months behind. So the police have got families to feed. They've got to eat. So they would arrest a guy on suspicion of something, put him in the cell, put the word out to his family, say, well, his fine is going to be a thousand bucks, but if you come with 200, um, we can do a deal and we'll let him go. So that was happening all the time, right? Some of these guys were getting taken off and beaten on the soles of their feet so they couldn't walk to intimidate them and get them to confess to things they hadn't done. So they were many of them were in a worse situation than me. And, and as new ones came in, they would come to me and say, you know, you're, you're a white guy, you're educated, you're, you're rich. What do we do? Can you help us? And I said, I'm actually in more trouble than you. You know, they want to send me to the bush to remind prison because uh, I wouldn't get off my farm. So it, it was, and, and the most... The best part of that was, um, well, perhaps not the best part, 
we weren't allowed, our families were allowed to bring us food, but they couldn't pass, they couldn't come in and they couldn't give us a container because just a couple of weeks before, a senior opposition politician had died in the main prison in Harare in Chikarubi and he'd been poisoned. And we knew that the government had done it. But the government said, no, no, it was one of his supporters who, who didn't like him and they brought poisoned food and this. So now to save face, they said any family bringing food to a prisoner had to taste it first and um, could only feed a spoonful at a time. So Sue would stand outside a chain link fence in the yard. We were let out into a yard to eat our food. And these poor black guys would sit down with a bowl of what's called copenta. It's a little fish like a sardine. Um, comes dried so they put in water to soften it and a bowl of um, maize meal porridge stiff and cold no no relish to go with it and they would be sitting there and they were so hungry they're eating this like dogs terrible to see so sue would bring me food and i after the first meal i said look just cook three times what you would normally cook bring as much food as you can for these guys so she would pass a spoonful of food through this fence and i would eat a spoonful and give her the spoon back and, and that's how we would go and as soon as I'd had enough, I'd say to these guys, right, bring your plates. And, and they would all bring their plates or their hands and see would dump food for them. And I smoked, everyone smoked at the time. So my son and my stepson would bring many packets of cigarettes and they would, we weren't allowed to smoke in the cells, but we did on principle. And they would give me cigarettes and I'd hide them in my coat. Uh, so we weren't allowed shirts. We had, you were allowed one clothing, one article of upper body clothing, a shirt or a jacket. And I'd had a light jacket, but it had many pockets in it. So I, I used that, hid cigarettes in it. And um, took the matches out of the box and tore the strip off the side of the box so it wouldn't make a noise. You know, all these little things. So I'd say to these black guys, go and see my boys get a cigarette. And they would all go and get their cigarettes. And I think on the second night I was there at one o'clock in the morning, the guy comes crawling across everyone else and taps me. He says, sir, here's a cigarette. I said, no, no, I told you to get that for yourself. You know, that's yours. No, he said, I got two. Thank you. I got one for me and here's another one for you. And I thought, shit, here's a guy that probably will never live in a house with running water. Certainly will never own a car or a TV. Lucky if he has a bicycle and a transistor radio. He's got no job, no income. So... To his mind, I'm richer than anything he can dream of, and he's helping me with a cigarette. I thought, you know, wow, there, there's a lesson for life. So, so I've been sorry that was a long-winded answer, but put all that together, and that's how I've been able to overcome adversity. It, it, it's harrowing to hear that. That's 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 in the 21st century that you're talking about that. Yeah, but it's still going on, James. I travelled extensively in Africa. I haven't been back to Africa for 17 years. When I was traveling in Zaire, which is now Congo, Rwanda, Burundi, Angola, Zambia, Mozambique, all those countries, this, I'm telling you, it still goes on. It still goes on, right? It's, it's horrendous what is happening and, and probably in other parts of the world too. But um, it's, of the 180 people I employed, I doubt if any of them worked again, right? We know a number of them have, have died from malnutrition. AIDS was bad, but um, if you can eat well, most people can survive AIDS. But there's, there's virtually no jobs left, right? Unemployment, something like 90%. So we haven't heard from any of them. We did hear from one of our house girls for a while later, but... Um, she had a son who had quite a good job, and I, I, I don't know if he still has, but I know most of those people are dead. Right. 
and they lost their houses. You know, we built a lot of houses on our farm for workers. When they were kicked off the farm, they lost their houses. I, they went back to their tribal areas, which were overcrowded and um, no way of making money. So it's, it's sad. And But the police brutality, I know, I've seen it all over Africa. It's, it's just terrible. But what what do you think is so? Because we'll have a very deep conversation about this, and obviously I can I can learn a little bit, which is good. What what obviously with Black Lives Matters is talking about obviously slavery. We're talking about former British colonies, but what you're talking about in the twenty first century is black corruption it is ultimately uh it's power grabbing it's literally every man for themselves so that doesn't really associate to okay it's lessons to be learned from two three four hundred years ago but the point that i'm making of is capitalism capitalism affects everybody it is not a case of Okay, the white man is at fault for creating this system. No, I, I, I don't think the white man's at fault. I don't think the black man's at fault. I, my philosophy, for what it's worth, is that it's taken the Western European, let's just talk about Western European, which and, and that's the way you live and the way I live. It's taken us 2,000 years from Roman times, essentially, to where we got today, and it's nowhere near perfect. It's got all these warts and bumps, it, it, but it... It's a relatively good system compared to anything else. I think Churchill said democracy's what the best of a poor, but I don't know, something like that. It's not perfect, but it's better than the alternative, whatever. So what we did in Africa, we I say we, but the European powers as a whole, we went to a continent where people survived in harmony with nature. And I think North America, you could use the same example in North America, right? So people didn't need to be sophisticated industrially or commercially because they were in harmony with nature, right? So, yes, it was harsh. Infant mortality was horrendous. People's life expectancy was 35 years, but they survived with what was available, right? And because Africa's hot, they didn't need to store food for the winter, because a little bit, but by and large, you can find stuff to eat in the bush all year round, right? except in the very cold southern parts where there were very few people anyway. So that, that system had been working with all its faults for thousands of years, right? So the Western powers go in, and in a very short space of time, they start developing it, and the missionaries develop it, and they educate people. So now, quite naturally, all the product of those schools, black people think, wow, the world's actually a much better place than what we thought. We want a bigger part of it. And many of them did it legitimately. They got degrees. They worked and within the constraints of whatever political system, they did quite well. And then suddenly after the Second World War, the Western powers, for a number of reasons, one being perhaps guilt and perhaps the most important being economical, they couldn't afford to keep all these things going and polit political pressure from India and all these others, they said, wow, we've got to give these people independence. So not only did they give them independence, they totally abandoned them, except for South Africa and Rhodesia, right? And, and we had our faults. I'm not trying to whitewash everything we did. But we didn't abandon our local people. But in north of Rhodesia, from northern Rhodesia northwards, virtually within a, a short space of a few years, the Western powers handed over completely and left them to it. And 
I don't care who you are, whether you're white, black or green, if you, if you haven't grown up and developed a system over a long period, you can't expect to run that properly in a couple of years, right? It, it's just an evolution thing. So the ones who were canny grabbed political power and they maintained that power through intimidation and violence, which is an offshoot of the tribal thing where you go back to tribal economies anywhere in the world or tribal um, lifestyles. It was all about, if you want it, go and grab it. But that was exception. Normally they lived in harmony. The Mashana and Madabili would have wars and steal one another's cattle and their wives and that, but it, it was relatively minor. But once, once you got um, black presidents, corrupt black presidents, and, and aided and abetted by European industries who wanted their raw materials and Chinese industries and Russians who wanted to sell, sell guns and all this sort of thing, these guys had to maintain their power and they just got totally ruthless and they didn't care. And I, I had a meeting with a member of parliament, a minister in Zambia many years ago, and he said, Peter, you've got to understand, he said, there's only two things important to a black politician. One is to stay in power. And the second one is to get enough money out of the country in case you can't achieve the first one. He said, that's it. He says, the state of people in villages is of no consequence. I said, that's awful. He said, yeah, but that's life. <laughs> so, and it's that, I think that thinking, and they weren't called to account by the rest of the world, United Nations or anyone. I, I really believe... We, I say we, Western governments, everyone has let the African continent down by letting these people get away with it. But they didn't want to do it because then it would have felt like trying to reestablish colonialism. And I, that wasn't necessary, but it could have been done a lot better. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah but if you do it in some sort of collaborative way or coalition, it's, Absolutely. it's, 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 it's um, Okay, they're gonna have divided people's opinions in terms of how they 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 think about it and how they perceive it. But obviously, you're never gonna be able to disparage that. Um, but that, but what what's your position then on the Chinese? Because ultimately, that's they're they're trying to obviously influence the continent. Chinese are being really smart. They are controlling Africa not through administration like the European powers did. So they're not putting in provincial governors and administrators and all this sort of thing, they're leaving that to the locals, right? They're doing it by money. So I've seen it in my eyes. So in Zambia, they said, we'll build you a new highway to the airport and we'll build you a soccer stadium. And that was two things that were important for status, right? So they did that. And they said, you know, we'll give you extended terms to pay for it and, and we won't charge you the proper rate. But in return, you've got to let us take as much copper out of the country or, or gold or whatever. And you've also got to let us export a whole lot of stuff duty-free, no tariff. So the first thing that happened was they started sending shiploads of these cheap plastic sandals, flip-flops, to Zambia. But prior to that, there'd been a whole string of little family businesses, even down to families in their backyard, punching out rubber pads and putting the straps in little businesses, making flip-flops and selling them to survive. Now, suddenly the Chinese stuff comes in at no duty and it's selling for half the price of the local stuff, right? So it puts all these small guys out of business. So they actually had a riot about that in, in Lusaka well, was 20 years, 20 years ago. <coughs> and they killed a Chinese overseer or something. That's what the Chinese are doing. They're controlling the economy by taking stuff out without paying enough for it and bringing stuff in without paying duty on it. And they're doing 
the the carrot, if you like, is building stuff, highways, hospitals, um, and a lot of them are not really built to a good standard either. So they're getting the countries in debt and then saying this is how you get out of it. So they and it's under the radar for the rest of the world. Right? It's it's not like coming in with flags flying like the British or the French did and convoys of governors and, and oh, they're not they're not interested in that. They just want to control and they're exporting Chinese to Africa. We believe, I don't know, there was a story going around, they were trying to send 100 million Chinese men to Africa because there's not enough women in China for these men to marry, right? So they're causing trouble and they're getting disenchanted. So their solution is to send them to Africa to run Chinese businesses and marry black women, African women, and that gets them out of the way of China. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But the rest of it, you, you can see it happening, the whole link. Some of our best farms in Zimbabwe have been given to Chinese, right? Some of the top dairy farms given to Chinese, given to Chinese too, right? So because they are helping the Zimbabwe government with all sorts of other things. So, so they're smart. And, and I believe it's really dangerous for Africa that they exchanging one lot of uh, oppressors and corrupt local politicians for external control. Well, I, I think I think it's, it's it's a good talking point, Peter, because obviously, well, I'll, I'll see. I'm very um, well versed in in terms of like geography and travel. I think, and and one YouTuber was was traveling from what was it Kenya, Mombasa to Nairobi, and he was saying the Chinese had obviously rebuilt the railway, huh? like just like you talk. And Kenya is not poor. No. relative to some of these countries sure. uh, and they'd had a sta chinese statue built inside this sta this station and the kenyans were not pleased about it yeah 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 you know and 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 i don't for a minute think there's anything wrong with the african people and i the example i use there's a really good book called guns something and steel can't think of the author and um he, he says why did comparatively few Europeans take over, build a British empire, take over control, millions and millions of people. He said uh, guns was a big one. He said the biggest, hand, his opinion, and the biggest handicap to Africans was the tribal system. And what keeps Africans down is that as soon as one becomes successful, he is obliged by his culture to support his extended family. And that's a huge drag, whereas Europeans are not faced with that problem, right? So he says, if you want proof of that, look at how successful Africans are when they get out of Africa. And, and the, the example I know is that in your country, in the UK, many nurses and many doctors now are either black South Africans or black Zimbabweans, right? And they, they fit into the British system very quickly and they save their money and they look after themselves and they do well. And they send a little bit of money back to Africa to support the family, but nowhere near what they would have to hand over if they were doing that in Africa, right? So they're released from that burden of family commitment and they can succeed. And that's the same in the States. One of, one of the, the best, the quickest developing communities in the States is Nigerians. And some are in crime, but a lot are not. And, um, and other, there's another, I can't remember which country they're from, but it's another, and they're removed from their constraints of their homeland and they have the opportunities of, of the first world, sure. But they end up doing better than the people who've grown up in the first world, right? So 
that's an interesting one to me. So the question in my mind is how can, how, not we, but how could things be changed so those people could use that expertise and skills back in Africa for the benefit of Africa as a whole? And I, I don't know the answer to that. Well, that's always the argument, isn't it, in terms of like foreign aid, as if, if, if people didn't migrate to the first world as we want, or first, like first world problems and into the first world from their relatively poorer nations and they actually stayed and uh, actually invested in that infrastructure, would they be better? Would that country be in a better position? Obviously that's an, that's an argument that's obviously going to keep going for decades and decades because it, it's not an easy, 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 easy solution because what you mentioned of, before they're better off if they move away and send a little bit back to their families because that little bit obviously still quite a lot in that in the homeland um and obviously well you may not see it that much in north america britain obviously they like to make it with advertisement towards give money to this give money to that it's like well that's another problem in terms of like corruption as well. But because the CEO, if you pay the person, the CEO less money, <laughs> you put more money towards uh, whatever charity that may be. And there's hundreds. But in terms of, you know, the old saying goes, charity starts at home. Mm-hmm. Need to look after it. And, and pretty much the pandemic has proven that because the only person that has made any qualms about that. Is the World Health Organization of all oh, you bigger nations need to look after? We use the African con- continent as an example, as we need to look after the poor nations. We're de- a, a developing nation is not going to do that. That first, they're going to yeah. look after their population first, so they don't get any backlash. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And and we saw in our problems in Zimbabwe. We and I don't mind saying who it was. Um, yeah, I've forgotten who it was now. It doesn't matter. Uh, one of the major charities that's always looking for money donated a pickup truck to the Zimbabwe government for fighting AIDS, for helping the government fight AIDS. So this pitched up on our farm full of government thugs to intimidate our workers and, and to intimidate me. So we took a photograph of it, a license plate, number plate, and we sent it off. And they said, well, it's not our problem. We gave the truck to the government. We said, it is your problem. You gave it to them and it's intimidating. Never mind it's intimidating me as a white guy. It's intimidating black people in Africa. It's your problem. No. No, they weren't interested. So I swore, well, I'll never donate anything to you guys again. You know? They weren't interested. You could, so, have a, you could have a field day with that now with social media. Because it's like, well, yeah. that's terrible publicity for them. And then they would have to answer to, the, to it because it would go viral very quickly i you know i i i've been involved in a few social media battles before and it's nobody wins those things you, you just get upset I, I i'm on social media to promote my business apart from that i don't do much on social media at all otherwise you just get sucked into that cesspool of arguing and this ah oh, it's, it's just there's better things in life for me well that's why i think people and i i've, I've just you, 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 as you mentioned it, Peter, it reminded me of somebody just mentioned that in a Facebook group. It's like, well, why are people arguing bittering? Because sorry about that. I was trying like, to keep 
my shut. Let me. Okay, let's go on. And uh, what I was saying was, with, with, with even with Facebook groups, is like that. I've, I've one was mentioned. Oh, there's so much arguing and bitter um, and bickering now. It's like, well, because people don't agree on something, thus they think it's their right or their entitlement to give an opinion. Where sometimes it's not, it's not necessary or it's not worth uh, giving. And, and pretty much, okay, I'm in my mid thirties, but it shows how I've been brought up of is an old way of thinking of you haven't got something nice to say. You don't say it at all, but obviously that's yeah. going out the window now as, as we speak. Yeah. I, I don't mind people saying stuff that I don't agree with what I, what I object to and what I find a problem is that people, and it's not just young people. It's, it's all generations. They've lost the ability to debate. You know, if you say to me, Peter, I think you're talking crap because boom, 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 boom. I'll say, yeah, okay, I, I can see why you say that, but what about this, this, and this? And if we can go on like that, that's that's fine. We can be diametrically opposed and have a civil discussion. But I find on social media, it's not, no, we disagree with you because, because, because. It's you're an idiot, you're an arsehole, you're nuts, you're a racist, whatever. And I, no. Let, let's have a debate. Let's not just attack one another. Let's have a decent debate. You know, and, and this whole racial thing, I've got to tell you a quick one. Uh, it might upset some of your listeners, but I, I think you'll find it amusing. People in Canada, and I think the States, but Canada are so sensitive about race. And I say, you, you, you've taken this to the point of stupidity and ridiculousness, and you're actually becoming racist in the way you're looking at it. Well, what do you mean? I said, look, in Africa, one of my black people, worker, somebody I knew, somebody when I was in business, somebody I'd been in... Uh, marketing club with could say, you know, the trouble with you white bosses are your arrogant pricks. And I'd say, well, I would never object to them calling me a white boss because that was a, a sort of almost a term of endearment, right? And I'm white. And I might argue with the arrogant prick, but, and I could say to him, you know, the trouble with you black people is that um, whatever, whatever, whatever. And they said, no, we're not all like that. No, but you whites, you blacks. But it was all on a friendly level. It wasn't you're evil because you're black, you're evil because you're white. That never came into it, right? So I'm trying to say to my Canadian friends, we had a much, we might have had our political problems, we might have had all sorts of problems, but we had a much healthier attitude to racial differences than you do here in North America, where you're trying to hide it and be nice and keep it under the carpet and, and all this sort of thing. We, we could talk about it and joke about it, you know, and that to me was the way it should be. So it led to some amusing, amusing interchanges. I can tell you. Do you, do you think, Peter, because you coexisted for centuries of okay, if we use South Africa because it's the easiest example I can think to yeah. mind of okay, the British uh, government at the time putting blacks in certain areas of you can live here, but you can't own. Uh, this, that, and the other, and ultimately the um, Afrikaans going a step further with with yeah. um, apartheid, which I thought, okay, so we're not the British, be it, okay, I'm British, my father's African-American, but Britain's not entirely at fault for the state of affairs of South Africa up until 1990, 1991, when Mandela came into power. So it's well, like, well, 
British had little influence after 1940, right? After okay. South Africa, after Union and then Republic status. Britain, Britain didn't have a lot of influence. Britain started it, um, and it was about power as well, yeah, uh, and control. They started, yeah, the Afrikaners, yeah, with hindsight, lots of mistakes. But um, the you were talking about the separate areas. Yeah, it's easy to look back and say that was evil, it was wrong, it was everything else, but I can understand why it happened, right? Because, and in a way, it protected some black communities. Yeah, it, it moved some out of their traditional homes, but in others, it stopped white developers buying up that land, right, and turning it into expensive housing. So there was other reasons for it. It, it, it was complex. Can I defend all of it? No. Can I defend some of it? Yes. Uh, it's it's like slavery. You can't defend slavery, but that's how the world evolved at the time. It's history for all its sins and faults, right? I can't defend the tribal wars in Africa, but that was what happened at that point in history. So I don't think there's easy answers to it. Do you, do you think the North America and to some extent, I'll put Britain in there as well, is an element of get guilt to in in the, in the proportion of the white community of no fault of their own and that that's my opinion because yeah. it's something that happened 400 years ago okay you might have an ancestry that uh they decided to go into um slavery ultimately i don't i don't i don't condone it either because ultimately uh, having a person as a commodity is pretty barbaric but mm-hmm. If you look into history, it happened on the African continent as well. Yes, yeah, and and uh, I read one report the other day that said, um, at, for most of history, there were more white slaves and brown slaves than there were black slaves. Now, you know, whether that's right or not, I don't know. But the point is, it was much wider spread than the people who are making other people feel guilty about it now will acknowledge. So, so yes, I, I think there is guilt, and I think a lot of it is misplaced and being stirred up for politi- political reasons, and I think that's sad. I think that's really sad. Um, you know, if, you, if you're looking at history, how far back do you go? Do you, do you go right back to biblical time? I don't know. I don't know. What, what I was going to throw in was what was the biggest mistake Europeans made in Southern Africa because there were too few Europeans in the rest of Africa to really make much difference. The biggest mistake we made in Rhodesia, and we tried to rectify it too late, was not encouraging and enabling a successful black middle class. I think if we'd done that, if we'd started that after the war, I think those two countries would probably be some of the most stable, successful and happiest in the world right now. I think that was the biggest single mistake we made. So we tried to do that in 1979 by appointing, by having a black representation in parliament and then appointing Bishop Abel Muzarewa as the prime minister of Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, Rhodesia. He wasn't a particularly strong leader, but he was a benevolent leader. But because he wasn't promoting violence, he was not acceptable to the rest of the world, right? United Nations or anywhere else. They they said, no, it's got to be in Como and Mugabe. We can't accept a guy who doesn't promote violence. And in South Africa, in uh, Indian Carter leader, 
Chief Gutsu Butelezi was in exactly the same position. He refused to join the violent struggle in South Africa, but he negotiated and, and he was quite a vociferous opponent of the white South African government. But he said violence is not the way. And he should have been the next, the first black president of South Africa and South Africa would have been a much better place if he had been. So now the Zulus are marginalized there. They're, when I was there, they were being killed by the necklace method. It was horrific in, in town, African townships close to where I lived. We saw the smoke from burning houses. It was awful in the early 1990s at the hands of the ANC. So there's two huge mistakes that, that both countries made. And it, it's easy to look back with hindsight. At the time, no one thought that that would, would help, but it, with hindsight, it would have done. You know, we did have, in, more so in Rhodesia than in South Africa to a degree, we had black businessmen in Rhodesia, truck owners, uh, transport fleets, a couple of small factories doing well. There weren't enough of them to sway the course of history. And that, that, that was sad because it would have been better for everybody if that had happened. You know? And over the period, it, it would have evolved. Eventually, it would have been a black majority government, purely by logical evolution. You know? Sadly, that we weren't allowed to do that. And I think South Africa, if they'd started early enough, could well have gone that route too. Anyway, just my opinion. So what do you, what do you think? Because obviously if you look at history with the US, obviously you've got Malcolm X, violence, and uh, Martin Luther King was pretty much doing it as people marches. If we get yeah. beat up, we keep going back and we keep going back. Uh, okay, nothing's much changed in nearly 60 years of... The so most blacks will say most hasn't most hasn't changed. Okay, I'm far removed from you know inner city or or the ghetto because mm -hmm. I've brought up in middle class uh, suburbia because of more being on my family on the white side. But you don't hear me saying victim this, victim that. I've kind of persevered. Uh, yes, I've looked back on things as okay. Was that racism? This was it. But okay, that's in keeping of right now. And I'm kind of putting an event under the microscope with the intent of us living in 2020, 2021 and things happening in the early 2000s, maybe late 90s as well. Nobody, it was probably, if it was racist, it was hidden. But lots of things as you look at it as, um, if I use being, uh, how would I describe it? Being told I would amount to nothing by a PE teacher, the, the people that he obviously marginalized were of color. So the, to, to make my point as this is me using what is now of current uh, culture and being talked about, and me as a 13-year-old kind of saying, well, that, that teacher might be in a racist. It's like, well... Was he just being, I would probably argue and say no, and say we're probably in keeping of the old school way of thinking as well. If we, 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 we terrorize you enough, you're going to change your ways academically. Okay, it didn't work. It's one of those things of, uh, it's more like man management of, you know, you got to put people, push people right buttons. That wasn't the right button. It worked obviously in the sporting sense because I went yeah. on to, to, to represent my country and I used that as rocket fuel right. when I was having a bad yeah. day as all oh, this person yeah. said you were you were 
obviously I would use ex- more explicit language than that. Of, you were shit. You're not going to want to do anything. And pretty much anybody being anybody, you use that kind of negative energy. You're going to get, you're going to get a response no matter what it's to. And what was I watching the other day of, it was a YouTuber as well. And he'd got into fitness but you go into fitness that could because of the wrong thing of being pretty much trolled of all the negative comments. I'm going to show you and kind oh, of put, right. put them through your middle finger up of, yeah. And, yeah. But what changed his whole outlook on what he was doing uh, was um, a fitness expo. He had grown men cr- coming to him and crying and said, you changed my life just by showing up every single day. And he kind of does it for, the right reason so the point i'm making after all that long story is that's how i operate okay i'm gonna i'm gonna disagree with probably thousands and thousands of people if i was to look under the microscope but you're always gonna have the people that hate you or the haters those people are always going to be there because any amount of success that you get because they can't see themselves ever excuse me, emulating it or getting it from the oh, we must keep you down. So that's right. where a lot of uh, anger, resentment comes from because it's like, well, I can't do it. So I don't want you to achieve. I want you to stay in the same same level as me. But obviously on the other side of that, there's people that are going to be testament to to that, be it, I don't know, praise, praise, uh, saying you're motivational very inspirational etc etc and it gives them the impetus to take action on whatever sure. that looks like okay we're talking about fitness in my, in, in my particular day job of if i can give you that little bit of impetus to take those baby steps to change that's massive because yeah Absolutely. What you were scared about it was change, but obviously the other side of that is people are unwilling to uh, come out of comfort. And what you were talking about early days of uh, living in Zimbabwe, I was only a teenager when this was happening. So it was like, well, how can this be happening or be allowed to happen by the by the UN? Because technically, if it had been, you'd have been anything but white. They probably just stepped in. Different story. Yeah, for sure. For sure. We knew that. We knew that. Yeah. Um, again, it's as much as I dislike the fact that none of the outside and Britain was responsible for the mess we're in, you know, what, what really hurts is that both my parents fought for the Allied cause during the war, as did most Rhodesian men uh, of that age. And many died, right, in the same Canada here. And yet, by the 60s, Britain, and we had 380,000 whites in not all English, but mainly English, few few con- from the continent, but mainly English. And Britain was quite happy to just, you know, wash their hands and abandon us. So that, that, that hurt um, for appeasement, really, keep the rest of Africa and the UN happy. So we didn't expect any, when things got worse, we, we, we didn't really expect support. But on a humanitarian side, we thought, Surely when people, farmers are being murdered and, and farm workers are being murdered, surely the British will step in. No, the, word, the best they did was to say, we'll send some planes if things get really bad to evacuate women and children. Yes, big deal. 
Well, so, that, that's probably because it became well. It what was once a superpower is a tiny, a tiny little island now. It's, it's yeah, sure. Um, but you know that uh, the UN. You you brought up the UN. If the UN was doing the job it was supposed to, it should have stepped in. But, uh, unfortunately, not. But that's I'm not. You know, I. It was disappointing, but um, I'm not letting it ruin my life. It's part of history. There's more important things for me to to be concerned with. You know? Yeah. So my penultimate question to you, Peter. Yep. And I asked this of every guest. What athlete would you like to sit down with, dead or alive? And what's the reason? You know, the, for, for all the disgrace he fell into would be Lance Armstrong. Um. Yeah, he admitted to taking drugs, but and that might have given him those few seconds or minutes to keep on winning. Um, but he had a grit and determination and perseverance that that few exhibit. You know, just just leave the super performance out of it, but just look at the commitment and the pure grit. And I I don't see that in many others. Well, I think the I think the last documentary you did is that's amazing because the perspective he because I'm in the same I was probably in the, before I'd watched it I was in the same camp of everybody of oh he's he's a he's a cheat and he's a liar but when he kind of gave you I did it because of you've raised a very good argument here that I can't I've got to listen to the rest of it now because and I won't get it away because it's it's a good documentary. But it gave it a different, sure, different take on why on why he did it, and ultimately the determination and drivenness that you talk about in the early days is Europe saw the American rider as a joke. Yeah, I haven't watched documentary, and and I was one of the last to believe that he had cheated. I, I kept defending him all along, um, but that. That being said, that that grit that he put into that, that pure determination and commitment determination, that, that that's rare in today. I, I don't know a lot of top level sports people, and don't I don't follow many. So, but that's over a number of years that stood out to me. And then, um, gee, I've forgotten his name. In that same category, I put Bruce Wardice, who ran Comrades Marathon on the picture on my wall there. I did four. He won that nine years in succession, right? And then he missed a year and came back and run it. I think he won it the tenth time. And and I know I've done that race. That's eighty-five kilometers and up and downhill. That that is tough. And this guy did it one for nine years. It's in the same category as Lance Armstrong. And as far as I know, he didn't take any drugs. <laughs> <laughs> and my last question before we wrap up the episode. If you had to summarize what we've been speaking about today into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? My 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 slogan that I have on my letterhead and under my signature: It's not what happens to you in life; it's what you do about it that counts. And I really believe that. So once again, Peter, thanks again for coming on the Mindset Athlete Podcast. Thank you, James. It was a great pleasure to meet you and to talk to you. And thank you. My pleasure. Thanks again for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode and got loads from it. Anything that was included and discussed will be available in the show notes below. 
And I would love to hear from you. Come and connect and ask your questions. I've been James Roberts from jamesowenroberts.com. Remember this quote by Chris Hoth. An athlete is a mindset. It's how you prepare, think, and execute, not by some elite status or physical stature. Anybody can be an athlete.